I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. University of Missouri Associate Professor Ben Trechtenberg knows that student protests can forever change an institution. He lived through it. Back in 2015, Ben stood watch as the Mizzou campus endured a series of protests about race, workplace benefits, and leadership. What began as normal student protests quickly turned into a frenzy that led to the resignation of the university president and chancellor. The incident resulted in more than just bad publicity, but dropping enrollments and budget cuts by the state. Now Ben is sharing what really happened behind the scenes and what he says is something all universities can learn from. We spoke about why the protests escalated to such heightened levels on the Mizzou campus and how things are there today. First, though, we talked about how intertwined America's history of race is on college campuses and how that can even affect what happens today. Universities in America have a problem with race because they're located in America, and America has problems with race. Right. And the whole world does too, but I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on what's going on in Brazil or Germany. But I know enough about American history to know that race has been central to a variety of social and political issues since well before our independence from Britain. We have significant racial issues on college campuses, and I think that's an important background for anything you want to talk about about 2015 at Mizzou. Missouri has real racial issues like other campuses. We have our own unique issues, but we also have issues that are similar to other places. And there's a ton of research about how, for example, student teaching evaluations are racially biased, about how when students ask faculty members for letters of recommendation, they're more likely to get a good response if they have a white-sounding name. There are all sorts of issues about how the police interact on campuses with students of different races. And that's all in addition to the actual straightforward, explicit discrimination that universities committed literally for centuries. So, I mean, of course, I'm interested in stopping implicit bias, but we shouldn't forget about explicit bias. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about what happened at the University of Missouri in 2015, and you lived through this. I did. So tell me what was going on with you, what were you doing, and what were you thinking as all of this was unfolding? Sure. By way of background unrelated to my life directly, 2014 in that summer was the shooting of Michael Brown by the Ferguson police officer, Wilson. And that, of course, was a huge event in Missouri. Mm -hmm. and a huge event in particular in the St. Louis area from which the University of Missouri draws a very large portion of its students. We get more students from St. Louis Metro than any other city in the world. And a big portion of our black students and white students and students of all kinds come from the St. Louis area. So coming back to campus in the 2014 to 2015 year, which was somewhat poignantly the year that Michael Brown would have himself been going off to college, We had a lot of students who had been at the protests in Ferguson or knew people who had been there or had gone to school in the Ferguson, Florissant area, coming back wanting to have hard conversations about issues that were important to them. So race was an even hotter topic at Mizzou that year than it would have normally been on a regular college campus in America. Mm -hmm. 
Also, we had ongoing issues that the university has had because we did not integrate until we were forced to do so by law. You know, the first black students enrolling in 1950, uh, as opposed to many other universities in America that had been integrated much mm -hmm. earlier. And even after 1950, people who were there at that time would tell you that there was not an especially welcoming attitude from large portions right. of the community. And so you have, for example, big, beautiful fraternity houses that were built by predominantly white organizations on land that they bought before black students went to Mizzou. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm an advisor for such an organization. And these organizations are now at least nominally integrated. But it's nonetheless the case that there were these largely white spaces created before the black students arrived, and those places are still there. For me personally, I became chair of what we call the MU Faculty Council, and most other universities it's called the Faculty Senate, in the summer of 2015. So that's a couple months before the protests that drew so much attention to our campus. And I was relatively inexperienced. I'd only been on the council for one year, and I had been at the University of Missouri for less than a decade. And maybe that's just a function of who was willing to put his or her hand in the air and grudgingly be willing to be nominated. But <laughs> there, that's how, that's how I, I got the job. You know, uh, I had been elected as the law school's representative to the faculty council at a faculty meeting that I did not attend. I don't mean to pretend that I didn't know what was happening, but I'm just telling you, there's not usually a big right. fight on campuses to be in faculty senate or to be in senate leadership. So I became chair of council. And part of what got me through the whole thing was that when it became a much bigger job than I had anticipated, there was a guy named Mike Middleton who had been a law school faculty member who went into administration and had retired, mm -hmm. who had encouraged me to do it, saying, how hard could it be? And he turned out to be appointed interim president when we had the change in leadership. And so I always thought to myself that as difficult as this was in terms of taking up my time, for Mike Middleton, it was surely worse. <laughs> so that was my small consolation. So in the fall of 2015, we started having students come back to campus who had been dissatisfied by what right. they saw the previous year, not just at Mizzou, but also in the state, also in the country. Black Lives Matter was getting significant more attention, whether it was getting attention as a movement with that name, attention to other black people who had been killed by police, revelations about police departments or city lawyers sitting on tapes in places like Chicago. There was just story after story from the shooting of Michael Brown going forward that year, as well as incidents of racism, prominent big events on other university campuses. This was with all the sort of basic little stuff that could be at any campus, like students saying, we don't have enough therapists of color at the counseling center. Mm -hmm. So that if a black person comes in and has issues related to race, you know, I'm not saying that only black people can be counselors for black patients, but it's nice to have a diversity right. of choices available. That's just one of the many things and, you know, how much funding we're going to have for black studies, whether there's going to be a diversity requirement in the College of Arts and Science or for all of the undergraduates. And all of these issues were hot. And so when this started to happen, was it, uh-oh, or was it at first for you just a, well, let's see what happens kind of experience? Well, in the beginning of the year, 
there were what I would call normal sorts of student protests. Mm -hmm. Few students walking through the student center, people maybe carrying signs or shouting slogans, people out on various outdoor spaces being heard or walking downtown. There was an event about police brutality and gun violence mm -hmm. downtown in Columbia that involved Mizzou students. And I didn't frankly think it was anything particularly out of the ordinary. My predecessor as chair of the faculty council, who was a plant scientist, he had put together a race relations committee of the faculty council that involved students, staff, faculty, mostly faculty, but it was intentionally inclusive in its membership. And so that committee was humming along. I hadn't appointed it, but it was there, and I was happy to be helpful to it to the extent I could. And then it became much more of a attention grabber and a this is the sort of thing everyone must be thinking about when we had the protest at the homecoming parade where the group of students that began calling itself Concerned Student 1950 blocked the parade, in particular blocked the car in which the university president, Tim Wolf was riding with his wife and I think some other people as well. And there's some controversy about whether that car did or did not bump one of our students. But separate from that detail, it was undeniable that that was an event that people saw. It got news coverage contemporaneously. Right. It was a big deal. Wow. And the question of what was going to happen next was a big one that I think all sorts of people at the time, you didn't you don't need the benefit of hindsight to say, oh, we should have done something at that time <laughs> right. at the time. People knew that something needed to be done to improve the dialogue and really help us move forward. So you've gone this extra mile of doing some research now, looking back to what, what happened. Right. And that's very brave, considering you're on faculty there, to, to take that step and look at what's happening on your own campus with your own university. As friends of mine have said, this is definitely the article of a tenured professor. <laughs> right. We don't need to go into that about your tenure. I already have it. Okay. <laughs> Tell me, though, why do you think that this situation escalated like it did? Because you point out several times there were a lot of protests happening at colleges around the country. I even remember some happening here at that time. But for the University of Missouri, this really escalated and, and went to very dramatic heights. We couldn't solve this problem of, say, an insufficient number of faculty of color by just throwing $50 million at the problem. That, that was not an option available to us. So that's one distinction I would make between Harvard, Yale, and the University of Missouri. Another, though, was management issues behind the scenes. Right. So we had a group of deans, pretty much all the deans who did not have an interim title, the so-called permanent deans, although as it turns out, many of them weren't so permanent after all. Um, about nine of them wrote a letter to the president of our system. And at our system, the president's the head of the whole system. Each campus has a chancellor. They wrote to the president of the system saying, please fire the chancellor because he's terrible. Mm -hmm. Now, regardless of who you think was correct, whether you think the chancellor should have been fired or whether you think the deans were going after him because he was appropriately holding their feet to the fire about long simmering issues where previous leadership had let them get away with stuff or some combination of all those things, it was undeniable that the deans and the chancellor were at each other's throat just days before the homecoming protest. Mm -hmm. And so at the homecoming protest and the immediate aftermath, 
the chancellor knew that the president was deciding whether to fire the chancellor. And the chancellor knew that the deans were advocating for that firing. So, for example, many of our student protesters were in the College of Education. In a better functioning universe, you would have had the chancellor of the campus sit down with the dean of education and say, do you know who the faculty are who have the best rapport with some of these students? Can we have a meeting with a couple faculty, a couple of the student leaders, the dean, the chancellor, and say, come, let us reason together. And what so often happens is they have this meeting and the students get some but not all of what they want and people go in peace. And the students say, if we don't get a little more or if you don't make good on your promises, we'll be back. And the president says, oh, yes, certainly. And you see this all over the place where after a racial incident involving uh, the SAE fraternity at Oklahoma, you know, President Boren comes out and makes a statement or you have uh, President Severud at Syracuse coming out and saying, you know, we need to have a better culture mm-hmm. or all sorts of issues. Right. Uh, President Salovey with the renaming of Calhoun College. You know, does the renaming of Calhoun College at Yale erase racial disparities in New Haven or even just on the Yale campus? Obviously not. Uh But was it seen as something that was done by an administration working in good faith to answer student concerns about a real issue? Sure. And similarly at Harvard, where you had issues about the iconography of Harvard Law School and its association with the slave trade. Well, did students at Harvard Law School get everything they wanted? No, because of course there's all sorts of other things having to do with representation, having to do with what is taught in the Harvard Law School curriculum, having to do with who's recruited to go to Harvard Law School that are way beyond the shield or the crest or whatever it was called. That doesn't mean though that people sitting down and working together can't usually make some progress. So there was just so much tension already there behind the scenes that it made it really hard for people to come together. Correct. And also, if you have a university president and and a campus chancellor who can't work together, who are completely dysfunctional, you need the trustees to resolve the dispute. The trustees either need to say person A is fired, person B is fired, or bump their heads together and say, go out and play nicely or one or both of you will be fired in a week or two or a month or two. And we did not get that kind of leadership from our board. They were not either willing or able to deal with the situation or maybe even were unaware of it until it's too late. The other issue I would bring up is that as a public university, particularly in a state that is trending politically conservative, People who are a little older than me grew up thinking of Missouri as a bellwether state in presidential elections. And even I remember it because, you know, Clinton, Bush and Obama all won Missouri. But then um, Obama managed to lose it despite winning the presidency. And then Trump won Missouri, but by way more than he won nationally. And so um, Missouri's now almost all the statewide office holders are Republican and there's big majorities in the legislature. And there is a national conversation in state legislatures, particularly among conservative state legislatures, about whether universities are too liberal, whether issues to confront racial justice are a smokescreen about liberal indoctrination, whether universities are or are not suppressing free speech, particularly of conservative speakers. 
And I don't believe for a minute that American universities are bad at free speech. I actually think American universities have some of the freest speech of mm -hmm. any locations on the face of the earth, certainly compared to European universities where there are hate speech laws that can actually criminalize things that people say at American universities every day. And compared to your average American workplace or your American high school, you can say the dumbest, silliest things, whether you're liberal, conservative, racist, anti-racist, communist, fascist, I don't care. You can reserve a hall or stand outside and say almost anything on an American college campus. And of course, there are incidents where people are shouted down, but the overwhelming bulk of speakers on the overwhelming bulk of our campuses get to say what they want. But there's this perception that you see in certain media outlets, this drumbeat of criticism against universities as stepping on free speech. They're described as divisive narratives when the folks who might be instituting the policies at issue would say they're trying to promote racial justice or other kinds of justice. So we had significant constraints at the University of Missouri about how frankly we could talk about the need for greater racial justice without offending the people who fund the university. So there was a lot of fallout from the, the incident, which absolutely. you know, yeah, absolutely. a lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people resigned. And many of the people who lost their jobs had done absolutely nothing wrong, and they lost their jobs because of layoffs and budget cuts that resulted from our significant decrease in enrollment, which was attributable to the reputational damage caused by the aftermath of the protests. I know that there was a lot of issues with funding, enrollment rates, that type of thing. And it's only been three years, which in some ways may seem like a lot of time. But I think in higher education, that really isn't a lot of time. And No, Harvard, I think, is still running the same basic undergraduate system invented by Henry Dunstan. Right. So here we are. It's three years later. We do have a very different political climate in a lot of ways. But I'm wondering... How are things today? Today, the climate at the University of Missouri is very similar to the way it was before the big protests. Interesting. And it's very similar to the way it is on many other college campuses. So if you ask around, people will tell you that we're making good progress on racial issues. And I think that is in some ways true. Mm -hmm. We are better situated than we were before in the sense that we have people whose job it is explicitly to look into this stuff in offices that previously didn't exist. There's a little bit more attention to trying to do recruitment and retention at the student and faculty and staff ranks. And things seem to be moving along. But I bet people would have told you that in the summer of 2015 as well, and certainly in the summer of 2013. Right before Michael Brown was shot, would people have told you that the University of Missouri was particularly likely to have a big racial conflict compared to, say, Oklahoma or Kansas or Texas or Wyoming or a private schools, you know, Baylor, Howard, Catholic, Harvard, whoever? So our enrollment is back up in terms of first term freshmen. We have a lot more freshmen this year than we had last year. And so we had gone down and down and that's trending back up. But the small classes that started last year and the year before are baked into the cake because last year's sophomores are this year's juniors and last year's freshmen right. are this year's sophomores. And so we are still short on money because of the enrollment drop, even after firing a lot of people. And so the budget situation is still tight. We're working on it. The legislature, I think, is largely reconciled with us. They were very upset with us. And I think there's a sense that we're on the same team again. 
which I used to take for granted. I just sort of, I couldn't imagine anyone being against the state university while being a state politician. It, it, it struck me as like being a U.S. senator who hates the flag. <laughs> you know, how can you be a member of the Missouri legislature and talk badly about Mizzou? And I recognize that we are not immune from criticism and nor should we be. But the kind of really negative talk that we heard from members of, including the legislative delegation that represents mid-Missouri, for whom the university is absolutely essential to keeping people employed and moving the economy of the region, the kind of statements that were made were so hostile that they really took me by surprise. And maybe that's my own naivete. And also, perhaps I didn't see coming certain of the political changes we've seen in the United States. You know, in 2015, Missouri had a Democratic governor. The United States had a Democratic president. Mm -hmm. And the way prominent politicians talked about the university was very different. Right now, we have a governor in Missouri who's a conservative Republican, but is a big fan of state higher education. So I think he, in general, is in favor of what we're trying to do. And I think the legislature, while having many of the same people that I had a few years ago, is a lot more on the same page with us. But that has taken a tremendous amount of work by the university to mend fences and just to sort of explain what we were already doing. You know, this perception that we were doing this, nothing. This, right? well, well, no, I mean, this perception that we were doing stuff that was actually hostile to the interests of so many of the constituents of these members of the legislature. You know, these members of the legislature would come in and they were not making this up. They were saying we we're going to get a tremendous amount of phone calls from people who are really angry at the university. And they were angry at us for what was in their perception, caving in to the protesters, agreeing to the silly demands of petulant students. And part of what motivated me to write this article is that I think what happened on our campus has been so mischaracterized that our students have been so, I won't say they're defamed, I'm not trying to make a legal claim, but that they've been so mischaracterized, so unfairly portrayed as though they were making these ludicrous and silly demands. And while I recognize that if you look at the written demands that the students put forward, certain of those things are not the sort of things that universities can agree to. But... That's the nature of dealing with student activists is that sometimes they ask for things that don't make a lot of sense in the first draft and you have to say no or you have to say, help me write this so that I can say yes. And those were the kind of conversations that had they occurred in September and October of 2015 might have given us a very different November of 2015. So in that article, you are sharing lessons learned and, and you highlight how this is really important for all administrators and higher education president students, all, everyone needs to kind of realize that these types of things can happen anywhere. Absolutely. We had our own special circumstances, right. but events similar to what happened at the University of Missouri could happen at any number of places from sweet little liberal arts colleges to community colleges to state flagships to public and private research universities of all kinds. That very easily could be the kind of protests that instead of petering out, escalate significantly. And a lot of it has to do with the individual personalities, but a lot of it has to do with how people handle it. I think a university president or chancellor or even a dean who doesn't have some sense of who would I call first in the event of a student protest, what would be some of my first moves, those people are committing malpractice. 
if you live in a place where there is sometimes snow, you have to have a plan for what you do if there's a big snowstorm. And if you say it never occurred to me that there might be a lot of snow in Minneapolis, people think you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. If you live in America and you don't foresee the possibility of protests against racial injustice or other kinds of injustice, where have you been? We have issues relating to immigration in this country. We have issues relating to policing in this country. We have issues relating to school discipline at the K-12 and as I've written about at the college level. We have issues about sexual violence, which of course are re-upped in the news tremendously the past couple of weeks, depending on what happens in the Senate with a certain nomination. We might have continuing protests. Just now, there have been protests at Yale and Harvard about what those institutions are going to do about Judge Kavanaugh, whether he'll be teaching at Harvard. I believe the answer to that is no. Uh, what Yale is going to say about their relationship to him. And those are things that, frankly, were fairly easy for the administration to deal with. It's not that hard for the dean of Harvard Law School to say, no, he won't be teaching here next semester. But if you're talking about a member of the tenured faculty, who is credibly accused of bad behavior from 30 years ago, dangerous behavior, criminal behavior possibly, or statements made today that are incendiary, that's very hard because the faculty members have process rights. The university wants to be deliberate. And one of the lessons from the University of Missouri is that process is tremendously important, but so is speed. And I recognize that those things can be intention, and as a lawyer and law teacher, I'm a process guy, but you need to at least acknowledge people and speak to them quickly, even if you can't resolve the problems quickly. It's not okay to say, because I didn't know the answer, I didn't call them back. I know you didn't go out and survey universities as part of your research to find out what they're doing, but you mentioned the importance of making sure that you have some sort of process, some sort of plan that you're talking to each other, and maybe these are some of the things that weren't happening in University of Missouri's case. But Well, so for example, we didn't have a chief diversity officer at the campus or the system. Right. There's some dispute about how useful those offices are, but I think they're able to do a lot of work much of which is behind the scenes, which is what it leads some people to think they don't do anything. I'm wondering what do you think is most important for universities to do and make sure that they have in check? I think it's very important for universities to be moving forward on issues of justice important to their students and other constituencies, even when there isn't a protest. And I think it's very important for university leaders to be connected to their communities, and I'm defining community quite broadly, so that if there is a flashpoint, there is some reservoir of goodwill, mutual respect, and trust from which the top administration can draw. If you don't pay in, you can't take out. And if you have a situation where the students are thinking to themselves, I don't even know this president. That's a real problem. And I'm not saying that every president has to do what some have done, like sleep in the freshman dorms, although I'm in favor of that idea, but I'm not saying everyone has to do things the same way. But I do think presidents need to be out. They need to be seen. They need to have faculty members who they actually know and have rapport with. Mm -hmm. Of course, the president is unlikely to have a connection with whatever random five students are doing who knows what on a given day. But does the president know 
the head of the student government? Can the president say to the head of the student government, these grievances that have just been aired, are they widely shared or are these people a little bit egregious in their concerns? Now, even egregious people need to be answered, but you might respond with greater generosity and alacrity if your trusted students say to you, oh, yeah, this is a real problem. Actually, I've been thinking of mentioning it myself, but I haven't gotten around to it. Or I wish I had thought of mentioning it. And I'm glad these people have done so. And if you know people in the community, there are other folks, you know, the people who are running the churches in your city, the head of the fire department. These are people that you're supposed to know if you are the head of a billion dollar enterprise in some town. University of Missouri's budget is in excess of two billion dollars. And that's pretty big. And even littler, little colleges, of course, have smaller budgets. But in those colleges town, they're often a big operation. And if you don't know people and you don't trust them and they don't trust you, it's harder to reach out to them. And do you think those things are happening now? At the University of Missouri, there is a lot of effort by the new president and the new chancellor to be trying to build some bridges. You know, they haven't been here that long. Um, The president in particular, who's been here longer and is the head of the whole system, which has campuses in four different cities, including Columbia, St. Louis, Kansas City, and also in Rolla, which is where our campus mainly an engineering campus in a more rural part of the state. The president has to run around all over the place, and he's definitely been doing that. And his predecessor, the interim president who took over after our resignations, spent a lot of time sort of shaking hands and kissing babies around the state. But I think the chancellor needs to do a lot of that internally. Mm-hmm. Not that the chancellor shouldn't have good relations with the legislature, but the chancellor needs to have good relations with associate deans and department chairs and the kind of faculty who are well-respected, even though they're never going to go into administration, and the kind of student leaders of one kind or another. And I think there is a recognition that that needs to be done at the University of Missouri and that, that it is moving in the right direction. You know, we have a new provost. She just came in and you know, literally a few weeks ago, and, and she's, I've seen her running around trying to reach out to faculty in various ways. And I think it's just the sort of thing that has to happen. And the difficulty is that there's so many demands on these people's time. And so something that seems like FaceTime can perhaps seem like a waste of time. And I'm just convinced that it is time well spent, even if the rewards are not noticed immediately. And I think it's similar on these issues of racial justice or gender equity or a million other things. It's important to move forward. And, you know, there's an old Jewish saying, it's not your duty to complete the work, nor are you free to desist from it. Mm -hmm. We're not going to solve racial justice. We're not going to solve the problem of sexual violence. But if you're a university president and you say, because I can't solve the problem of sexual violence, I'm not going to do anything about it. I think you're sowing the wind to reap the whirlwind. I thank you so much for coming in, and I appreciate all of your honesty in this conversation. It was really enlightening. Thank Thank you for having me. Ben Trechtenberg is an associate professor of law at the University of Missouri. He is the author of the article, The 2015 University of Missouri Protests and Their Lessons for Higher Education Policy and Administration, published in the Kentucky Law Journal. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast, produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.